Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Barron. He is a psychiatrist who completed his medical training and psychiatry residency at Yale University's Neuroscience Research Training Program. He is a fellow in pain medicine at the University of Washington, and after his fellowship, he will be the medical director of the Interventional Pain Psychiatry Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and faculty at Harvard's Medical School. He is also the host of the podcast Science at All, and most prestigious of all, he is a fellow Texan. We start off our conversation talking about an article he wrote for Scientific American titled, Why Doctors Are Drowning in Medical School Debt, and we end with a discussion about his recently published book, Reading Our Minds, The Rise of Big Data Psychiatry. The book sounds awesome, and I'm super excited to give it a read. You can pick up a copy from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Both of these topics are very consequential, and this conversation was a ton of fun. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Barron, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so um, before we get started, how about you tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself? So um, I started medical education in uh, San Antonio, where I was in the MD-PhD program, to the first years of med school, and then... Around that time, I met my wife, who was one of my classmates at the time. And so I finished my PhD right as she finished medical school. And so she matched to residency at Yale University, and I transferred to Yale to finish up the last couple of years of med school. Then I stayed there. I was uh, finished up med school, went to the neuroscience research training program, had a lot of fun, and now I'm doing a pain medicine fellowship in Seattle. And after this, I'm going to be going to Boston, where I'm going to be starting an interventional pain psychiatry program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. That's an academic history, but uh, otherwise, you know, I've got one kid and my wife is having twins uh, pretty soon. So it's going to be a busy time. Jeez, family's growing fast. Yeah, man. I think we're definitely done after this. We were thinking, yeah, maybe we'll have one more. And now we got two for one. So uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah, that's my wife is in um, in medical school, too. And we had kind of talked about we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed for twins because you kind of knock them out, you know, two at once there. <laughs> I had a, one of my good friends in residency. He had twins the first time. And he was just absolutely destroyed for like the first year, just completely exhausted, both him and his wife, like no one, you know, barely saw him sort of thing. And, but then after that, he was just like, you know, this was a much more economic way in like every sense. It forces you to be very efficient. And so it turns out a lot of, a lot of people that I know end up having twins and you're like, gets to be like part of this twin club, like (laughs) shared, shared trauma. (laughs) So, um, We have a lot of projects. We talked about your academic background, but you also um, are kind of a public intellectual and um, you also are an author and a psychiatrist, too. Can you talk a little bit about your motivation for being involved in so many different um, arenas? Yeah, I I wonder sometimes if it's like 
a, a healthy thing or like some sign of underlying like pathology. I, I think it's more of an intentional problem, really. Like there's just, I see all this stuff that I'm interested in, in doing and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll do that for a little while or do that for a little while. And uh, I just, I think a lot of things are very interesting and I like being part of them. And uh, in med school, my fourth year, I had the opportunity to go and to live in Oxford for six six months. So like my PhD is in brain imaging and I had worked with this lab doing brain imaging, uh, functional brain imaging using MRI, uh, trying to study antidepressant action in the brain. And so I went over there for six months and uh, it was like fall to spring. So over the winter and I wasn't associated with the college there, which is like important, you know, so it wasn't like, you know, Slytherin or, you know, whatever the other colleges on my own. So, and so I didn't have any friends is where I'm going. And so uh, did you, have you ever seen these meetup groups? Uh, it's like a, an app. You can like meet like-minded people. And so I eventually found that and I met up with this writing group and they taught me how to write a pitch uh, for kind of a more popular audience. And my first pitch was to the Oxford student and I got two articles in there and then, um, it was fun. I thought it was a lot of fun. It gave me a reason to go and like meet some cool scientists that I thought were interesting around Oxford who would never have been interested in meeting me otherwise. Some random, you know, exchange student essentially who wasn't associated with the college. And so, uh, when I came back to Yale after that, I had you know, I pitched my first piece to Scientific American and they liked it. So I, it, it was a lot of fun. And um, it's allowed me to explore ideas that I wouldn't otherwise. And it's also forced me to sit with ideas and to think about them and to meet people who know a lot more than I do. And so it forces me to like really articulate what I'm thinking. Which I, thought was I don't know if you've had this experience, but... One of my favorite things about writing is how it really forces you to think through your own thoughts oh, yeah. and actually make sure it, it makes it really apparent when you're thinking something that's illogical or doesn't make any sense. And you try to write it down really quickly. You're like, OK, what I think is totally, you know, out of the realm of possibility. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the, my you know, it's both very comforting to finally articulate your thinking and clarify it, but it's also a little frustrating to realize how uh, sloppy-minded you are at one point. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually heard about you first from an article. Chandler sent it to me from the Scientific America. It's titled, Why Doctors Are Drowning in Medical School Debt, A Resident Physician Investigates the Causes of Skyrocketing Tuition. Now, this article was super interesting to me, really fun to read, entertaining, but it also made me think a lot about my own medical tuition, how lucky I am to be in Texas. But tell us, you went through this investigation. Where did this investigation lead you? Yes, yeah, so it led me to talk with policymakers, with, you know, obviously I spoke with uh, Dean Grossman, Dr. Robert Grossman, who's the uh, CEO and uh, Dean of the NYU Langone Medical Center. Um, I talked to the ACGME people. I talked to financial counselors, um, everyone that I thought might be interested. I talked to an economist who was very, very, very interested in student debt and had a very unique perspective. 
Um, so, so the basic question I was asking, like, like I, you know, discussed in the piece. So my wife and I, you know, both, uh, went to med school or started med school in Texas. And so I, she had full four years of tuition plus the MPH program. And I had a full scholarship, uh, for the first two years of med school and then, uh, plus a stipend. And then when I transferred to Yale, I was able to secure a financial aid scholarship but then for living expenses, like that trip to Oxford, I told you all about that. <laughs> I just didn't have like a, a lot of money to, to pay for that. So I ended up taking student loans. Um, and so between the two of us, uh, we sat down with our accountant and we added it all up. And it's something like $300,000, which um, was an awful lot of money for us. I mean, that was the first time, you know, we'd ever thought of a number that large in relation to our, our own finance. And uh, this is one of the first times we'd ever sat down with an accountant at all. And so, you know, as we're going through our budgets, you know, we're encouraged to, you know, figure out where all of our money's coming from, where it's going, you know, basic finance 101. And we're like, okay, well, if we paid all this money for med school, where's all that money going, right? Like, what did we actually get? Like the day-to-day, -day, yeah, we sit in a, in a lecture hall, you know, there's online, Blackboard, or whatever y'all have, there's dissection, but you know, what does the school actually do with the money? And so that's really what set off the investigation. And I was, I had heard around the same time that NYU was, you know, not charging tuition anymore. So I was like, oh, well, how did they figure this out? You know, so you've got this one situation where people are being charged increasing amounts year by year for the same product. And at a rate that isn't keeping pace with inflation and then you have some schools nyu is not the only school now that offers uh, uh, free tuition or, or no tuition um so what what's going on and so that's really what i set out to do so just for some real quick perspective for our listeners so i think most people know that's listening to this show how much medical school costs but it varies between you know twenty thousand on the low end you know maybe 18 16 to like 90,000 on the high end. So just some perspective. And then NYU comes out and says, we're doing it for free. So yeah, sorry, keep going with your story. What, what did the Dean tell you? Yeah. And so he, I, I went in to, to go and meet with him and really, I mean, I could have had a phone conversation. Maybe I could have sent him an email with questions, but really I wanted to meet this guy, you know, I was like, who is this person? And like, why did he do this? I wanted to like look him in the eyes and like understand, you know, person to person, you know, what was going on. And his staff, it was clear from when I walked in that his staff really enjoyed working with him. They all called him Bob. And, you know, he came out into his waiting room, uh, which was just surprisingly a little far away. <laughs> so we walked down this long hallway and this guy is like, Oh, he's like six two, six three. He's a pretty tall fella, and you know he's he was just very he was a very kind looking guy. You know, I could tell that he could get down to business, but he was a very pleasant uh, person. And we sat down and we just kind of got to know each other a little bit. And uh, turns out he had himself had student debt, and at the time when he went to med school, most of his classmates were from families of doctors or other, you know, professional class people who were likely not taking out loans to pay for med school. 
And so he was one of the few people from his like socioeconomic status in this class. And so that, that really connected with me because my parents are not physicians. And so we were, you know, I come from a lower middle class kind of background. And, um, so that, you know, we talked about jobs that we worked in high school and like I worked at restaurants and mowed lawns for a while. And he, uh, he told me this great story of, have you ever been to the Long Island Sound? Mm-mm. I haven't been. Uh, it's like by New York. So there's this real like bougie part of Connecticut, kind of close to New York City where, you know, the coastline, it's like the million dollar, you know, it's very expensive. And there was this casino there that had these tall white wooden exterior walls that needed to be scraped and painted. And so he, during the summer, that was his summer job one summer, to scrape the old paint off, like sand it down, and then paint it again. And he described standing on this ladder, just absolutely drenched in sweat, while he can hear these party boats, you know, people having fun behind him on their, like, you know, you know, $500,000 <laughs> boats or whatever. I was like, oh, okay. So he he had, like, a personal kind of emotional experience with debt. And the way he described it, uh, he was looking at a lot of his students that he was admitting, and he felt like they were in a very similar position to himself. And knowing what the budget was like at NYU, which is a whole different story, by the way. Y'all should really read about his transformation of NYU based on their finances. I think y'all would be really interested in that story on this podcast. It was actually a really good book by um, William Hasseltine. Um, what is it called? World class. And, uh, it kind of goes through. There's also this Harvard Business School kind of, uh, case study of what he was able to accomplish at NYU, uh, financially. So, so he's very much like, let's get into the details. Let's figure out where our money's coming from, where it's going sort of guy. And so he knew that there is, uh, there was, there should be a way for the school to be able to pay for, uh, the student tuition. And so he went about, kind of securing money for this endowment and he eventually did and he uh it was something that he believed in and he felt strongly about and he made it happen which is kind of what he does evidently i mean if you read halstein's book that's kind of his personality like when when he took the reins at at nyu langone they were something like 150 million in debt annually and now they have you know they've expanded i mean there's a whole table of things that 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 are different and during his tenure and so um i don't know i really liked him i came away from that thing oh this is a really it's a really nice guy and um i could see how some faculty at nyu did not like him because he kind of uh trimmed the fat a little bit and he forced uh, some reckoning you know he wanted measures for productivity and measures for you know what people were doing you know in order to merit a salary that they were earning and I think y'all will find out in academia that, you know, people who are doing a lot of things don't worry about that or think about that. But people who don't do as many things become very sensitive when you discuss productivity measures. (laughs) So, uh, um, anyway, I, I thought it was great. And so he, you know, I asked him, him personally, like, okay, well, you measured where everything was coming from and where everything was going in your institution where was medical student tuition going in your institution? And he's like, well, I went to support, to support unproductive faculty. <laughs> it's like, 
that is what he told me. And uh, afterwards, I uh, when this piece ran, I, I was uh, I was accused of making that up, and I was like, no, he actually told me that. He's actually written that other places. Uh, so, um, I, I, and I trust that he knew because he he's very much a numbers guy. Um, and so he put it into that and then found a way to fund, to subsidize uh, the tuition. Yeah, I love that. And there's a lot to unpack in that because it's, you know, it's a huge story. The article is really good. We'll link it in the show notes for everybody. But um, there's a few things that I think are important to talk about. First thing, I think it was really good that you actually spoke on his character from meeting him because you touched on this a little bit, but this was actually not without controversy. There's just, you know, pulling up Twitter, which is probably the worst place to go to look for good news, but it's a great place to smear someone though. (laughs) Great place to smear someone. It is very easy to find a lot of things calling this move self-interested, just doing it for, you know, increased prestige of NYU and things like that. You know, obviously, like you said, that was really good to hear about his character and, and, you know, on the other side too, even if someone's doing it for, for negative reasons like that, if it has a positive outcome on, you know, students like that and future doctors, sometimes, you know, it may not matter that much. And, you know, touching on that topic of um, motivation behind things, I think it's really interesting to learn um, how sort of tuition rises organically. And a lot of times it's not driven by malicious incentives by people. It just kind of accidentally happens. You know, it's like, Time goes on, things start out one way, and if you just kind of leave them and go with the status quo for enough time, things waste starts building up, and then before you know it, you know, you've got uh, tuition prices ballooning way beyond inflation values where they should be, you know, for essentially the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that the same thing can happen in your personal finances, right? I mean, you start spending, you know... You start going to, to dinner like once a week and then twice a week and all of a sudden you're spending a thousand dollars a month eating out. I mean, which is, you know, nothing I've ever done, of course, right? You know. <laughs> no, but then unless you realize it and you sit down and you figure out where your money's going and, you know, why you're not able to do what you thought you were able to do with the funds that you are making every month, you won't figure it out. And, and I think, you know, I, I did ask him about the, uh, after I met him in person, we had a follow-up phone call and I was a little nervous meeting him at first because I wasn't sure what I, you know, what, how the conversation was going to go. So I really didn't get into the details of this kind of a uh, controversy surrounding the tuition. And I asked him kind of what he thought about it. And I was like, you know, what's going on here? And he's like, he just, he, he says that it was, it is a way to make a school more competitive. Right. Like, of course, it'll make the school more competitive. Right. Like what applicant wouldn't want to go to a school that has the sense to not charge tuition? And it's like, but is that the foundational reason why he did that? There are many ways to make a school more competitive. Right. And that is a very expensive way that required an awful lot of organization and fundraising in order to take place. So there are many easier ways to make a school more competitive also. And so I think that academia is a very unusual organization, which I don't pretend to understand. It's not, it's not like a, a place where I'd grown up, and I, I don't understand a lot of the controversy. I remember there was an article in the New York Times um, by a, a physician who has since become a journalist, and the arguments that she was making in the piece 
it made me feel like she had never taken out a loan in her life. And it's like, you know, it's that sort of mentality. And it's like, this seems like a person that doesn't really get finances because they've never had to pay much attention to them. And so um, having an emotional connection to money is something that, you know, people who grew up without it have for one way or another. And I mean, you know, not to get therapy wise or anything like that, but I think uh, actually I'll just, there's this line, did you ever see the aviator, you know, about Howard Hughes and, uh, you know, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? So he's sitting at dinner in this beautiful house in Connecticut, right? Uh, what was the woman's name? One of his uh, long-standing girlfriends. Uh, it was in Connecticut, and they're sitting around this table talking about, and the topic of money comes up. And they're talking about how ridiculous it is that someone's budgeting or not spending enough money. And DiCaprio was like, the reason why money is important to you is because you've always had it, right? And like, you've never had to think of where it's coming from or how to spend it properly. And I think a lot of people in academia are in that situation, but Grossman wasn't growing up based on his account and, you know, other people have known him. And so I appreciate what he had done. Yeah. I love that. And I think it touches on two things that we've also talked a lot about. First one is waste. And the second one is transparency. Because this concept of waste is something that, I mean, you know, it's a classic joke about Americans, right? We just waste things and we don't even think about it. But that is true in some respects. And things like waste have downstream effects. You know, it's not just that you're wasting money, um, you know, at the individual level inside of your own department, inside of the class you're teaching if you're wasting money. You know, the teacher next to you is wasting money and then all these other things and they kind of have an additive effect where they have all these downstream consequences. And, you know, we're, we've seen like burnout and all those sorts of things increasing a lot in recent years. And you have to ask the question, is it related to, you know, how much money we're spending on school? Is it related to how much, you know, effort and waste there is in all sorts of things from the medical school application process all the way down to SOAP and, you know, applying for residencies and things like that. So it touches on a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been nice the last few months uh, from a student uh, loan perspective uh, to not pay any interest on on student loans, but I, I don't anticipate that that's going to continue. Yeah. One of the quotes you have in the article is Dr. Grossman. He says, I think this is the key irresponsibility at the heart of medicine, the inability and unwillingness to learn one's underlying cost. And that really comes into play with the student loans, but I think it also applies to you as a physician, you know, like how much is this treatment going to cost my patient? And is it just as effective as another treatment that costs three times less? I actually, if, if I can continue on that, um, I think that's a huge deal. That only becomes more important, the more you want to do in medicine. Right. And so, if, if your goal is just to see patients, you know, in and out, you know, one after another and just to keep a clinic schedule like that, then you'll be able to get by okay. I mean, especially if you're in a group practice where essentially your costs are subsidized by the group. However, if you want to have resources to be able to create programs, right? So, for example, there are many academic centers who are always whining about not having enough money. And it's like... Y'all are doctors. You're making money and you are being 
reimbursed by insurance companies. Maybe not what you want to be reimbursed, but you're being reimbursed. So you should be able to calculate calculate how much money you have. You should be able to calculate your expenses. And based on each, like, uh, you know, in pain medicine, there are different procedures that you can do, each with a different reimbursement rate. And then from there, you can calculate how much your uh, materials cost in order to do that procedure, right? Like your medication, your needles, your, your time on the machine. So basically, it's an equation. And so you can decide or rather not so much decide, but you can, you can understand how much you need to work in order to produce a certain amount of money in order to have a certain number of resources left over to create a program if you want. And so, right. So in medicine, there's something called a functional restoration program, which is often a money loser because it's not generating as much income as some other procedures, which is the same thing in a hospital, right? Like you, you can imagine a neurosurgeon makes a whole lot more per his time than, or her time than like a psychiatrist, right? It's kind of intuitive. And so you can balance how many people you have working and how much you're paying them. And then based on that, be able to create programs. And so academic centers are always saying that they have no money and they don't have money to do projects. They don't have money to do research. And why? They never stop to ask why. Right? It's like, okay, well, if we're all working really hard, what are we getting for our money? And, you know, if we're spending money, where is it going? Do we need to spend it on that? And so that's the whole idea of, you know, calculating where stuff is coming from and where it's going. And that's exactly what the economist told me, you know, which was really interesting. It's like, he's been trying to convince medical institutions to do that forever. And, you know, he gives talks on it, he's written papers about it. And it's not so much that people don't want to do it, but they don't know how to even start doing it. And there's not enough political momentum to get it going because you would essentially be changing the status quo, right? Like you would have to put forth a lot of activation energy to create a system that then allows you to trace where all those dollars are coming from and where they're going, which is something I was shocked to learn wasn't required. You know, like, like how is it that institutions can survive without knowing where their money's going and where, you know, it's like, which um, I think it's just because they have such a surplus to start off with that, you know, they can afford to, to be sloppy. Yeah. And that's the, that's where the concept of transparency is really important. And, you know, that's both making the data available so everyone can go through it. So if they have questions like that, they can figure out the answers to them. Um, but it's also gathering that data in the first place. Yeah. I mean, keeping track of, and, and we, we bring this up a lot, business and concepts like this are so much more simple compared to, um, you know, science and medicine and things like that. Because Coagulation cascade. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we invented business and those concepts for ourselves. They came from our minds everything else came from nature, you know, so it just inherently sort of makes sense that the business concepts are more simple because we actually made them for ourselves. Thought about it, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, but when you ignore them, you know, there's all these huge consequences and it's not necessarily maliciousness or evil intentions from people. It just happens accidentally. I always say it wrong. There's this uh, quote often described to uh, Mark Twain, which is never ascribed to malice what can either what can easily be explained by incompetence. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that, and, you know, probably everywhere in the world, but you know, also in academia. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to remember that as I view the news. You know, you know, you, you should remember that also when you're rotating third year. <laughs> 
it's like, okay, this person isn't malicious, They're probably exhausted and not thinking. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So you mentioned status quo and how it's hard to change the status quo. I was listening to you. You're a host of a podcast, uh, The Science et al. And one of your episodes, you're talking to another fellow psychiatrist, and you guys are trying, he, he was trying to change the status quo in psychiatry. And you actually have a new book coming out. It's called Reading Our Minds, The Rise of Big Data Psychiatry. Um, can you talk about the main thesis of this book and why did you decide to write it? Um, yeah, so I, I believe you're referring to Justin Baker, who uh, he was the, the scientific director of the Institute for Technology and Psychiatry at McLean Hospital over in Harvard. And yeah, I first met him my intern year. I was somehow through some very fortunate but unfortunate series of events asked to give a kind of like a grand rounds talk at McLean hospital. And I was just getting off a week of night float and I thought I was going over to give a lab meeting. Um, one of my friends had invited me for this and I was like, Oh, I'm going to go and give a meeting in her lab. It was about the research I had done over at Oxford a few months before. And I get there and there's like 150 people. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that was the first time I met Justin. And uh, I remember walking around. Uh, it was in very uh, kind of the dead of winter. It was quite cold. Just kind of talking about what he what he was up to, what he wanted to accomplish. And um, I really enjoyed meeting him. And it was clear that he had a very different outlook than some of the people that I had met at Yale in the psychiatry residency program. Because Justin was very interested in finding practical tools that could be used to supplement clinical interactions, right? So all of his work had focused on recording patients, video recording patients in the inpatient psych unit and trying to essentially create with a computer what we as clinicians do with our brains, right? Except doing it in an operationalized, standardized fashion. And this was, this was awesome to meet him. I had recently written a piece about... Um, the need for standardized clinical interactions in Scientific American. And so, like, meeting him and talking to him was really exciting for me because I was already thinking about some of this stuff. And um, so then he and I stayed in touch after that. And eventually, you know, uh, I, I decided that, you know, after, like I mentioned, I got this uh, offer to write this book, I was like, okay, I really want to sit down and spend some time and think about all these digital tools that are coming out. I want to understand what's possible. I want to see how that fits into the larger picture of the clinical interaction. And then I want to be able to see if I like it or not, you know, agree with it. You know, like what we were talking about earlier, really organize my thinking around it and see if I can motivate, you know, this, this sort of field and, you know, see if I can uh, find some way that I, I think it's really valuable. Indeed, I did. I, I thought it was just so interesting. Um, I met a lot of very, very cool scientists and people who are thinking deeply about these tools. And in the end, you know, what the book is, is I'm using the story of a real story of a patient. And I talk about how I evaluated her and how hard it is to understand something about someone's behavior when you've just met them moments before and they're a complete stranger right so so much of psychiatry is based on establishing someone's baseline 
right? Like, what are they like? What were they like before they came into your clinic? And then you have to figure out how that baseline changed, which brought them into your clinic. And then you have to figure out what to do. And neither of those three are easy because right now psychiatry has no clinical tests. Like the, the instrument is the clinician's brain and their ability to sense, you know, behavioral abnormalities and gather history and put it all together. And so what the book does is it steps through a series of different tools that I could have used in the evaluation of this patient. Um, and they start off with like social media and online search history tools. And then I move to passive data collection, which is more classically like the field of digital phenotyping, things like accelerometry, uh, geolocation, context logs. And then I move to conversational data, like the video recordings, which Justin had been using, which I've, he since helped me set up at Yale, actually, and I've got some cool work coming out. And then finally, I, there's a section on stress tests, like if... You know, a patient has chest pain, cardiologist evaluates them, they do an EKG and then maybe a stress test to try to flex the organ. Can we do that with the brain? And so I kind of stepped through some some ideas that I think are promising there. And then finally, I, you know, if all this data is going to be useful, you have to have a framework within which to organize the data and to make sense of it. And so I have a section on platforms and, you know, what sort of... Uh, technologies might prove helpful in uh, organizing all this data. And then, of course, you know, as I'm sure you'd very much, under, uh, you know, understands, like, it isn't going to work. You have to fund it somehow, right? I mean, you know, IT doesn't grow on trees <laughs> either. And so uh, the overlying question or the underlying question is who is going to fund all of this technology development? And related to that, who's going to own all this data? Right, so is our patients going to own their own data? Our clinics, our health systems, our insurance companies, and so these are questions that, in the end, um, you know, even if all of this is really promising, the way I kind of finish the book is is by asking these questions. Like, I don't have answers to how, how this is going to. Yeah, obviously, I'm resident thinking about this, meeting people and stuff, and so. Uh, you know, I, I did meet with some of the, the thought leaders and, you know, they, they fully acknowledge that this is undecided, you know, how the ownership is going to work, how data security is going to work. Uh, and so uh, figuring it out now would be really helpful. Um, you know, everyone wishes that we had had more thoughtful conversations about social media before, you know, the rise and, you know, explosion uh, of social media. And so that's kind of how I leave it. Um and it was a lot of fun writing. I mean, it was a great time. Quick, uh, quick plug, but have you seen the uh, Q documentary on HBO about uh, like the rise of Q? No, yeah. I need to see that. You need to watch it. It's talking about the explosion of social media. Um, but I want to talk about uh, psychiatry and the field of psychiatry as a whole. It's kind of one of the newer medical fields. I mean, most fields of medicine are pretty new, but psychiatry, I think, is interesting and we're just learning this because we're in our psychiatry block right now. It's our last block before <laughs> dedicated. And I have been contrasting it in my head a lot with a field like infectious disease, which I think pretty unambiguously has seen the largest increase in knowledge over the last hundred years. Um, yeah. And not just volume, but also depth of knowledge. You know, the levels at which we can explain stuff in infectious disease is really impressive. Why do you think that psychiatry hasn't gotten to that same level of 
um, like a mechanistic understanding behind a lot of these things, because it seems like a lot of the psychiatric disorders are characterized based on their symptoms or their presentation right. and things like that. But whenever you ask about a mechanism, you know, you can maybe go a few levels deep, but you really can't go too far into explaining mechanistically how these things are working. Do you have any insight on that? I, I mean, it's something I think about a lot, right? So my whole research shtick or whatever is to clarify and better understand different categories of mental illness and, and also chronic pain, which is the same, right? I mean, you ask patients, where does it hurt? How long? It's all symptom-based. Uh, so it's very comparable or uh, to like DSM diagnoses. And I think when it boils down to it, um, it's just really complex, it's so much harder and there's so much more individual variability. Like if you have MRSA on your nose, your MRSA is going to be the same MRSA as the MRSA on my nose. Right. And that could be, and even though you're sad or your mood is depressed, it could be completely different reasons, completely different neurochemistry from my reason. And so the problem isn't as clear. And so, uh, what do you do when you're faced with a situation where the problem isn't clear? You stop and you clarify the problem, right? That's like engineering 101. And so uh, what what all this field of digital phenotyping is aiming at is like, okay, we have all of this kind of noisy data, right? We don't really understand what it means. A patient can say, I feel depressed, and that's completely different depression you know, if you ask Megan and Harry or whoever, right? And uh, completely different things. And so um, how can we better understand something that is the same across people? And so in the same way that other fields of medicine have created tests and developed instruments to measure and quantify something that is standardizable, something like, you know, blood assays or, you know, testing for something like MRSA. Psychiatry hasn't really moved to that point yet. We still deal in language. And I think a large part of that is that the tools to quantify behavior in this way didn't really exist even a decade ago. And now, uh, you know, with the rise of IT, like I don't even know where my, my cell phone is, but um, I'm actually a little stressed now because my smartphone is always next to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like the best behavioral measurement device that's ever been created. And so what the field of digital phenotyping is trying to do is see how we can use this device that everyone already has to understand different facets of human behavior in a very standardized and operational way. And um, hopefully that'll be helpful, right? And so um, we know that understanding symptoms and clumping symptoms hasn't been very helpful because we've been trying to do it an awful long time and haven't really gotten very far. Um, like I actually, I, I had uh, reviewed this paper that was uh, commenting on the ethics of using machine learning to understand schizophrenia. And I, I had reviewed it and then I had eventually um, written a commentary on it because I really quite liked the paper, but I felt like the authors had missed something really important. So in the machine learning algorithm, you take a lot of data, right? And you try to predict a target variable, right? So like what can predict MRSA infection? In this case, what brain functions can be predictive of schizophrenia, the diagnosis of schizophrenia? But the problem with that is that while MRSA is a, like a singular entity, schizophrenia, like I actually sat down and calculated how many different combinations of symptoms can reach a diagnosis of schizophrenia 
And guess what it was? Just out of curiosity, just what do y'all what do y'all think? You're in your psychiatry module. Fifty. I was gonna say yeah. 100, 200. Uh, you should definitely tell this to your professor, or maybe not. This is probably really pissed them off. It's seven point six trillion. Seven point six trillion. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. So I sat down and I calculated it. I, I was actually um it was the day before Valentine's Day. And uh, I thought that I had a, I was moonlighting in the emergency room overnight and I would show up at 11 o'clock, fully caffeinated, ready to rock, you know, until it was like an eight hour shift. So so the seven in the morning and I realized I was a week early. <laughs> I'd put it in wrong in my schedule. And so uh, fully caffeinated, I went home and I was like, okay, I'm going to finally figure out how to calculate schizophrenia like this. And um, I stayed up, almost all night, you know, or, or daytime figuring it out. And then I was like, okay, this number is just totally bonkers and it must be wrong. And so I wrote three mathematicians and asked them, you know, to check my work essentially. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but really this is a small number for us. We deal in infinite numbers. And so, oh, so they didn't really uh, appreciate it, but um, yeah, but that's sort of um, the, the statistical or mathematical word is degeneracy or something like that, right? To where you can't understand the entity in the same way you would like MRSA, right? So these are called degenerate categories. And so um, it's no wonder that we can't find a biomarker for schizophrenia, right? There are like 7.6 trillion types of schizophrenia technically. Each, you know, of course there's some overlapping biology for the symptomatology, right? But we don't know how many overlapping biologies because we can't really calculate it. And so um, that's a huge problem. Yeah. And hopefully by measuring, that'll be helpful. Yeah. No, I see, I see how you have pushback on this in the field of psychiatry, because as physicians, medical students, we think we're pretty hot stuff, you know, and we're the ones who can go perform a physical exam, interview a patient and understand what's wrong with them, right? And we have this broad understanding of many different fields of science from mass, statistics, physics, biochemistry, microbiology, and then all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, your expertise isn't good enough, we're going to use machine learning to, to figure this out. And I really don't think that's what you're saying, right? But that's kind of the hard part for physicians to get over is, and, and I don't know, what, what's your response to that? How do you deal with that pushback? So, I mean, there's a whole lot of different fields within psychiatry. And so you kind of find your people, you know? So, like, you know, I fully respect and, you know, I enjoy, I have friends who are analysts, like psychoanalysts. And, like, I myself have a therapist who is not psychodynamically minded, but he's very not an MD, you know, very, very wonderful guy I've enjoyed talking to you for a long time. Um, and uh, so you just kind of live and let live but at the same time, do what you want to do and you got to make a case for it. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, I just keep coming back to MRSA or, you know, in the book, I keep coming back to cardiac disease. Um, the stakes are really high in some disease groups, right? Like if you don't catch a, a STEMI, you know, someone, someone could die and it's going to have a result pretty quickly. And if you don't catch a MRSA infection, someone could die and it's likely that they'll die pretty quickly. And so the field has been motivated 
in a more acute sense to develop solutions to problems that are well-defined to start off with. So psychiatry is in the situation of having chronic illnesses, by and large. Um, we're seeing a lot of research in the suicide now because it's a more problem, right? And however, unlike MRSA or heart attacks, the problems aren't well-defined yet. And so that's one of the reasons I think that I got really excited writing this book. And I think that digital phenotyping will give us tools to better define the problem and then hopefully bring more clarity to what, to what we're after and dealing with. Yeah, this, this was an example that I thought about. Um, and I completely agree that this is a very consequential problem because you, you brought up the suicide example, but there's a lot of other things that fall under this umbrella too, like um, a lot of the shootings, just a lot of different things, crazy, crazy ideologies, all of these things, we don't have standard objective measurements for them. And whenever I was reading, we haven't read your book yet because it hasn't come out. It comes out on the 27th, right? Uh, later this month. Yeah, I think so. Later this month. Yeah. But whenever I was reading um, the summary document that um, your publicist sent us, I kept thinking about um, this concept of like infectious disease and how to solve that. And the example I thought of was um, like diarrheal illnesses. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of different classifications like bloody, mucusy, watery, all those different things that we learn about those, right? And we just take them for granted. But I would just put myself in the situation of if I was trying to figure out what was causing diarrhea and I was just using the categorization of diarrhea in all of my, you know, experiments, it would be useless, right? I would never get any data that was meaningful out of that because you can't just solve diarrhea. You have to solve the different kinds of diarrhea, which have you know, sometimes overlapping mechanisms or different causative agents and things like that. But you have to really separate them on a granular level. And right in the case of diarrhea, there's not too many different separations. But in the case of mental illness, like you make the point, there may be, you know, millions or trillions of different separations for us to, you know, tease out before we can ever have a hope of actually figuring out what's causing these things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what, you know, I hadn't thought of the diarrhea example, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I got, I got a, um, my degree in biology and we did a lot of micro and have you heard of, um, Koch's principles before? I, if I have, I, I don't recall. I'm sorry. He was a guy in the um, late 1800s that kind of was really helpful in figuring out anthrax as a causative agent. Oh. And he, he basically came up with these different principles. Um, you know, like you need to be able to isolate a bug from someone with the disease and then you need to be able to give it to somebody else and they get the same disease which is obviously unethical. I'm not condemning that these days, but that's kind of the gold standard that I hold up in my mind, right? You need to be able to give someone a disease in order to be able to say that you kind of understand what's causing it. And in the case of mental illness, you know, we're a long ways off from that. Oh yeah. Um, and what, what made me think about that is the, the monoamine hypothesis of depression and things sure. like that. You know, they, they told us the story about, uh, what is it? Reserpine. Have you heard about that? You know, yeah, it's a yeah, monoamine depleter. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, oh, dang, that's really good evidence. And then, of course, you go look it up and it's like, it's very contentious. Yeah, but but the issue, I mean, there's like the dopaminergic and serotonergic, you know, and then there's even all this ketamine stuff. And it's like, they could all be true in different people, right? It's, depression is so poorly defined as a category. It's like your diarrhea, right? I mean... Maybe you have a sample of 100 people who all happen to have bloody diarrhea, 
right? You know, or the, the likelihood within that subpopulation is greater of having bloody diarrhea. So whatever you learn about that population is not going to generalize to another sample of 100 people who are more likely to not have bloody diarrhea, right? And so, you know, all of those theories could have merit in different individuals, but right now we don't have a way to clarify the difference between them, between the individuals. So more tools. I don't know. I'm a gear guy also. Like I like going, you know, outdoorsy stuff and like I like getting gear and, you know, having tools for stuff. So this is very much like both very reinforcing of my personal bias towards gear liking and also a very pragmatic <laughs> problem solved. Yeah. So to wrap up, you mentioned in your your summary of your book, you mentioned there's a couple issues that we should work out before these tools come available. Like, one, who owns the data? Um, we kind of wanted to end discussing surveillance capitalism. Can you explain to us what surveillance capitalism is and how it applies to your work? Yeah, so kind of generally, I mean, I, I'm not an, you know, an economist and, you know, I'm not a bioethicist or someone who, you know, is particularly articulate about this or has thought in extremely deep ways about it. But just generally, like the idea of surveillance capitalism is commodifying and monitoring people's data with the goal of making money off of some part of that data, right? So the, the, the types of surveillance capitalism that most of your listeners would probably be most familiar with is just marketing surveillance, right? So Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, I'm sure, you know, they, they pay attention to what we do online, to how long we're on certain web pages, you know, they get feeds from our GPS and, you know, watch our social media and with the goal of selling us products. Right, so being able to predict which products are most likely to interest us and how can they drive us towards certain products. There's also, of course, security surveillance in the name of you know national security, you know, fight terrorism, you know, or maybe uh, identify shooters or, or something like that. Um, it's a little more nebulous what goes into that, mainly because we don't know. <laughs> um, but th those are the general ideas, I think. And so people are understandably concerned about having that same sort of framework applied to their own behavioral health. And I think that that concern is well-founded, but I also remind people that this data is already being collected. And the tools that I describe in my book is nothing that isn't already existing in someone's pocket. And right now is their data is being monetized to sell products. Um, and it would make sense to me that patients would want to be able to benefit from their own data, right? And especially in the case of uh, severe mental illness. And, and like, I, I think these tools are more likely to benefit severely ill patients um, than they are, you know, like the Woody Allens of the world who have been in therapy for like however old Woody Allen is. <laughs> and so, uh, um, that that's kind of the way I, I think about it. It's like, how can we guide a conversation that allows the benefit of this data to, in a large part, be returned to the people who are creating it? And in order for that to happen, I mean, conversations about data ownership and data security are going to have to take place. 
We touched on transparency um, earlier when we were talking about the medical school inflation. Do you think that transparency has a role to play in um, uh, data capitalism too? Yeah. Uh, well, specifically in healthcare surveillance, uh, from calling it, I think the effort to be transparent about data is being very carefully considered. Um, there's a there's a group in Atlanta at Emory, uh, Moon Moon De Chaudhry's group. Uh, I had spoken with her, and she was one of the first people to use social media to predict outcomes like postpartum depression or schizophrenia, like a psychotic episode. So basically, she's looking at the types of words people use and what does that say about their mental state, right? And she developed uh, what's called a digital navigator position in her lab. And so the purpose of a digital navigator is only to explain to people what the data is, how it's collected, who can access the data, how long the patient is interested or willing to have their data collected for, like how far back in time, like one month, 10 months, to the beginning of time when they started their Facebook account or what have you, and then how far in the future they're going to let their data be collected. And so that's a skill set, right? And I mean, we have social workers in clinics that exist, like their function is to explain social services. And in the same way that social workers exist, uh, Moon Moon is saying we need to have a digital navigator that can help people understand this otherwise kind of intimidating and unclear topic. So that's the best way to approach transparency is like have someone skilled to be able to make it transparent. Yep, I love that. And I do think it touches on the concept uh, that you were talking about earlier, too. You just got to think through these things and, and actually not let them accidentally happen you know, cause they can get out of control, but need to put an effort into it. Um, well, this has been a great conversation. Um, Dr. Barron, where can people go to learn more about your work? Um, I mean, they could read my pieces on scientific American. I've got a, a website, which, uh, Samantha Holmes created. I'm very grateful to her. She did an amazing job. Uh, it's just Daniel S. or, uh, I have a Twitter account. Um, which I think y'all will link out to. It is two underscores, by the way. Daniel underscore Baron was taken. So you get you get what's available, right? Yeah. Um, but thank y'all very much for having me on here. It's been fun talking. And good luck in your psych module.